one of the oldest and most interesting gods in the Roman pantheon. In fact, in the Indo-European pantheon is Venus. Often considered the goddess of love, she had a dangerous side as her influence gave the Romans the passion and desire to expand their empire. So where did she come from? Most would start with the Greek Aphrodite, but she is definitely not what she seems. She was not even part of the original Olympian gods and is so old that her origins date from before the existence of the Proto-Indo-European language and the Indo-Europeans. But luckily for us, she has left a trail of how to track her rise and eventual fall. So come with me on a journey of love, passion and war. But first, grab yourself a cup of tea and welcome to Crackenford. Many people have this romantic idea that the goddess Venus is associated with love, romance, beauty and fertility. But if this is the case, then why is she found on so many Roman coins opposite the head of emperors? There isn't much romance in a coin or this representation of her. The fact is, this goddess of love was as much a goddess of passion and desire and not just sexually, but in terms of power and conquest, the desire for victory, the desire to expand the empire, the desire to use the necessary violence to achieve these things. So where does this goddess go and where did she come from? Well, the rise of Christianity across Europe in the first millennium really removed her from many cultures in the same way it removed many of the traditional religions. But her image was so popular, we are still very much aware of it and almost take it for granted and her association with Venus in the night sky as well. In fact, even her image back in Greece caused much debate and a sensation when first carved as a full-sized classical nude around two and a half thousand years ago. In fact, many people objected to it, but it was this representation that also helped cause much of a modern popularity. But how did she come to be in the Roman pantheon? And the answer to this is that the Roman culture was significantly influenced by the Greeks and also the Etruscans. But for Venus, the Greek influence is undeniable and the Greeks themselves were well a potpourri of different influences. And so to briefly explain this, the first significant population of Greece was made up of Stone Age hunter gatherers who were then replaced by Neolithic farmers around eight to nine thousand years ago, who then absorbed some of the early Indo-European dispersals, and this was followed later by more Indo-European dispersals, all influencing the population, culture, traditions and religion over thousands of years. And the result is the rich and classical landscape we have in Greece and we see today. And from this, we eventually see the Romans take on the Greek goddess Aphrodite and make her Venus through a process of syncretism. And we also see her associated with a star in the night sky and that's taken across too and the star we now know as the planet Venus. But if we know Venus came from Greece as syncretism with Aphrodite, then can we tell where Aphrodite came from considering Greece's mixed past? And this is a far more interesting question than many realise as her origin is not the same as the other Olympian gods of Greece. She was an outsider who was let into the Olympian pantheon. Now, I will discuss the Greek creation myth and overall theogony 
in another video because it's a, a huge subject in its own right. But we can discuss Aphrodite now as she is a special case. And whilst there are many stories about how she came to be, probably the oldest Greek version we have is where Uranus, the sky god, was castrated by his son Kronos. And when Kronos threw his father's severed genitals into the sea, a foam was created. And it was from this foam that Aphrodite emerged, fully formed and beautiful. And from her place of creation, she was carried ashore upon a seashell, pushed along by wind and the waves, which is what the famous painting by Botticelli represents, which is called the birth of Venus. Now, according to mythology, the location of this event was in Cyprus and her father was the sky god. And we get these two pieces of information and we should note them down because they will help us as we move backwards in time to try and find her origin. Now, because Aphrodite was not created in a normal godlike way, and by that I mean two gods didn't get together to create her, and that the event happened away from Greece in Cyprus, then this hints at a pre-Greek and a non-Greek origin. And so implies that her origin is actually different from the other Olympian gods. And we can show this as in the Mycenaean culture, the culture that was in Greece and Crete before Greece formally came to be Greece, we find an inscription telling of 11 gods' names, gods that would eventually become the Olympians of Greece. But there is a name missing from that list, and that is Aphrodite. She is not a god from the Indo-European pantheon of Mycenae, but instead has come from elsewhere. In fact, if we look for the equivalent of Aphrodite in Mycenaean mythology, then the result isn't conclusive. There are goddesses of animals and nature, and without doubt the Mycenaeans would have had a goddess of love, fertility and beauty, but the name of such a goddess is not properly understood. And yes, they, they may have even had any local equivalent of Aphrodite, but again, there's not enough evidence to confirm this or confirm her name. And if they did, then why wasn't she in the list of soon-to-be Olympians? Now, whilst some might say the Mycenaeans who were based in mainland Greece were influenced by the Minoans and other Aegean cultures, we must be careful to note that they also developed their own religion and pantheon that was distinct from Minoan and Greek pantheons. And this is one of the main factors which leaves us with doubt. What seems more likely, and is a theory with a majority of the academic consensus, is that the Greek Aphrodite came from the seafaring Phoenician influence via trading routes in Cyprus, and probably during what is considered their Dark Ages, which is around the start of the first millennium BCE. Now, to complicate things further, the Phoenicians didn't worship a goddess called Aphrodite. They instead worshipped a goddess called Astarte. And so we see more syncretism take place where the Greek Aphrodite is developed from the equivalent of a diffused Semitic Astarte. And we can feel confident about this as the Phoenicians established trading colonies all around the Mediterranean, including Cyprus and brought their own religious practices with them, which the Greeks would have then seen in a process that is often seen 
when one culture sees another that it deems more successful, uh, then adopts some of the Phoenician culture's beliefs. And so the Greeks brought Aphrodite into their pantheon of gods, joining the Olympians. And with it, they also brought Astarte's link to the Venus star. But we should ask, where did Astarte come from? Well, it looks like she is an aggregation of Ashtart of the ancient Near East and Athart, a northwest Semitic god, and was the daughter of the Sky Father and Earth Mother. And so at the same level in the Pantheon family tree as Aphrodite. And Ashtart and Athart both resemble Ishtar of the East Semitic. And we know Ishtar was worshipped uh, within the 3rd millennium BCE in the Mesopotamian Akkadian Empire. And she too is associated with the Venus star. It is basically the interactions between these cultures and the desire for more religious syncretism that resulted in these similarities and adoption. But even before Ishtar, we see elements of a goddess associated with the Venus star. And this is because Ishtar has her origins in a goddess of Sumerian civilization, going back to the early 4th millennium BCE, because it was the Akkadian Empire that absorbed the Babylonian people as it expanded. And with this, they kept the Sumerian goddess, considered one of love, beauty and sexual desire, and she was called Inanna. But like Venus and her other ancestors, she is not just a goddess of love and sexuality, but also a goddess of war and justice. And she is seen in some depictions as holding weapons and sometimes snakes. And it is at this point in history that we see Inanna as the most venerated of all the gods in Mesopotamia and has more surviving stories and epithets than other gods at the time in this region. Now, for those who have not heard of her, then Inanna's most well-known story, and one that is also open to many levels of interpretation, is the one that tells of her descent and return from the underworld. In this story, Inanna goes to visit her sister, Urshkigal, the queen of the underworld, and so abandons her place in the heavens and on earth, and she dresses in a very particular way, taking seven items of clothing, and as she descends into the underworld, she passes gates where she is required to give up something she is wearing. And so on her arrival past the last gate, she is naked and without power. Her sister is angry at Inanna's arrival, and she is judged and found guilty and tormented before being sentenced to death and is hung upon a hook. But these actions are not without consequence. And her absence is causing chaos and death across the earth. Crops are failing and the land becomes barren. And so the gods intervene and look to rescue Inanna, who returns to the land of the living. But the demons of death come from the underworld to try and take a replacement to Inanna. But the people they choose are in mourning of Inanna, crying. However, Inanna's lover, Dumuzi, is not mourning. And through transformation and the family's love, he escapes permanent punishment. And so it is eventually his sister, Gestinana, who is taken to the underworld as a replacement and must spend half of every year in the underworld. And then Dumuzi must spend the other six months there. 
which results in the cycle of the seasons. Now, as I said, this story can be interpreted in many ways, but it definitely is a story of fertility, uh, the fertility of people and of the land, the people crying and mourning represents the need for rain, and these motifs are then seen in other myths, even myths in Indo-European cultures, such as the Nordic story of Balder, which I talk about here. But none of this answers how Inanna came to be the goddess of love, fertility and war. She is not an earth mother, as many stories have her as the daughter of the sky father or sky god. And so where there are stories of her mother, then it is her mother who is the earth mother. And then there is an association with Venus, an object that is seen around eight months a year. And this appearance of the bright object and then its disappearance for four months could well have influenced stories of Inanna going into the underworld and then coming back. But there are some of you who may think that the goddess who would eventually be known as Venus could be also associated with Paleolithic women figures called Venus figures, to which the keen-eyed of you will notice I have a few here. And as when they were discovered, they were associated with beauty and fertility. And this is a name that stuck. But these figures, whilst often exaggerated characterizations of women, had a purpose that we're just really not 100% sure of. You know, some people think they were representations of a goddess, which seems unlikely to me as an early personification of a god was unheard of. And so, certainly from those times, and so some think they were toys, some think they were sex objects. Or my current thoughts are that they are what they literally look like, representations of a woman, the person who made the figure new, perhaps even a self-portrait for the their partners to take and this is something I'm going to talk about more in my next video about the magic of imagery and iconography from thousands of years ago. And so where did Inanna come from? Well we don't know for sure but a couple of hypotheses is that she's the result of earlier Neolithic farmers arriving in the lower Mesopotamian region and may have fused with existing local deities to form this more complex god she may have been formed with influence from Ishtar, who could possibly be older than current records show, although this theory has far less academic support. But perhaps the most plausible option is that she came from an earlier culture living in the region called the Ubaid culture at a time from the middle of the 6th millennium BCE. And they had a fertility god called Nihursag, and it is her that may have formed the basis for Inanna, and again, possibly with external influence from migrating cultures in the region. In Herzberg, whose name is thought to mean Lady of the Sacred Mountain, and was also known by the names of Ki, Damgalnuna and Ninma, was associated with the earth and its produce, its harvest, its animals, and as such could be considered a fertility god, and a god more aligned with crops and agricultural farming. And this would make sense as an early, more primitive form of such a god at a time when farming was becoming a de facto part of life. In Hersag mythology says that she gave birth to other gods and was known as the mother of all the gods and the true and great lady of heaven. And she was seen as a wise and nurturing mother figure, often seated and often holding a plant or animal, something we then see in later depictions in other cultures such as the Phrygian uh, Kybele, who not uncoincidentally is also known as the Mountain Mother. 
But despite being important and appearing in myths such as Enki and Nursag and Enki and Ninham, the latter being a form of creation myth, the worship of her declined and we see her replaced by Ninlil before we see the rise of Inanna. And so my thoughts are that perhaps it was Nursag who was originally the mother goddess of all things in the Neolithic farmer's creation myth, in the civilizations that adopted agricultural farming, the original form of the mother goddess, someone we would consider in the modern day as mother nature. And as cultures changed and diffused, she was demoted from mother to daughter, something that's not uncommon. And as part of demotion due to cultural shift, she could have also been associated with war. It is just a theory, but to me, the evidence supports such a theory more than other hypotheses I've seen and provides a tantalising thread that could then associate her with the Paleolithic Venus figurines. Now, what I want to say is thank you to my patrons who make these videos possible for their questions, thoughts and support. And I want to thank them as I conclude this journey and so the story of Venus, a mother goddess, then a goddess of agriculture, fertility, and then war, and then passion and desire, and finally love. Her stories are so popular, many are still known and celebrated in different ways today, seven and a half thousand years later. She's an example of a Neolithic god from the Near East entering the Indo-European pantheons. And if we look at this, this is a good introduction to how some of these old gods came to be part of the Indo-Europeans, and how their mythology influenced future cultures and traditions and I'll talk more about this in future videos so be sure to subscribe and hit the notification bell to be absolutely sure you don't miss out on these but for those who are single this Valentine's Day remember Venus was as much about passion and empire building than love and so perhaps you may prefer to watch a video on the origin of Lysa, the wolf men, bear men and lion men of Indo-European warriors. And I want to thank you all for watching and my patrons for their support. And with that, please stay safe and well. And this was Crack and Fort.